Good afternoon, everyone. I'd like to thank the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, first of all, for having such a great title, and second of all, for inviting me to come and address you today. I'm very excited to be here in Sydney and to speak at such a great venue. I'd like to dedicate my talk today to the courageous people of the Middle East and North Africa who, against all odds, continue to rise up and defy the dictatorship and largely international silence vis-a-vis uh, -vis that dictatorship, which will be the focus of my talk today. After Egyptians toppled Hosni Mubarak in, on February the 11th, the first international visitor to Egypt was the British Prime Minister David Cameron. He arrived in Tahrir Square to congratulate Egyptians and to say that he was very inspired by what happened. Now we have a long and illustrious and very difficult history with the Brits in Egypt because of British colonization. And, and so anything that a British Prime Minister or a British official says is often perused and thought about for a very long time. And when it comes to hypocrisy rhyming with democracy, we have plenty of examples from the past because when Lord Cromer, for example, was the High Commissioner in Egypt at the, the beginning of the 20th century, he was a major crusader for Egyptian women's rights and feminism, while at the very same time in the UK, he belonged to a union that fought tooth and nail to keep women from voting. And so this idea that a string of Western officials come to Egypt and say one thing and back home do another thing, or vice versa. It's not something alien to us. And lo and behold, when David Cameron came to Cairo and met and went to Tahrir Square and saluted the revolutionaries, saying, you've inspired me, two days later, he went on a tour of the Gulf with about seven to eight British arms manufacturers to sell weapons to countries who he knew would use those weapons against anyone who similarly felt inspired by what happened to Egypt. And you fast forward to just the past two weeks up until today, where I'll give you a very quick kind of summary of what's been happening. The UK had its largest arms fair in the middle of September. And the Foreign, the foreign Office and the, the Office of um, the Foreign Ministry and the Commonwealth or whatever it's called, invited Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and Bahrain to that largest of arms fairs, again, to sell them weapons, again, knowing what they would use those weapons for. Because in the case of Saudi Arabia, for example, we have seen weapons bought from the British taken to Bahrain, a tiny neighbor of Saudi Arabia, where people rose up in February, inspired by what happened in Egypt. And the Saudis and their Gulf allies have been using those weapons they bought from the Brits to squash the uprising in Bahrain. The uprising was largely squashed in March. And Saudi Arabia not just uses the weapons out there, it hasn't shot at its own people yet, but what Saudi Arabia has done, and, and the odds against Saudis who want to rise up, was very clearly shown to us last week, when on Sunday, the Saudi king, who's usually considered a feminist and a reformist, and is in his late 80s, so he doesn't really have much time to reform anything. But he gave Saudi women the right to vote, and everybody rightfully celebrated. But very few of us stopped to think, wow, they still can't vote. It's 2011, and we're celebrating something that they're just going to get in 2012, 2015, actually. It wasn't gonna, it's not going to come that quickly. And he also promised that they would get a seat on the Shura Council in, in Saudi Arabia, which is all appointed. 
But then two days later, after Saudi women were given this great, uh, expressed their gratitude for this great gift from the king, a Saudi judge sentenced a Saudi woman who had dared to break the, the ban on driving to 10 lashings. This created a bit more of a stir on the international community and the king, once again, the reformer and the so-called feminist, swooped in and rescued, pardoned this woman from the lashing. And so the question here is, what happens when the king isn't there anymore to pardon women from these judges who see fit to pass whatever sentences? And the question beyond that, and the question that very few of us is asking or are asking is, what's going on in Saudi Arabia and why are we supporting Saudi Arabia? And if we take that to Bahrain, back again in Bahrain, just three days ago, three or four days ago, just as I arrived in Australia, a Bahraini military court sentenced Bahraini doctors and nurses to between five to 15 years in prison just because they treated the injured and the wounded during that uprising, which was squashed earlier this year. And you know, the outrage over sentencing doctors and nurses just for doing their jobs is well-founded. And yet, the United States, a major ally of Bahrain, for the first time since that uprising began and was squashed, plans to sell the Bahrainis $53 million worth of weapons, knowing very well who those weapons will be used against. And the reason that the United States is going to sell these weapons to the Bahrainis, and the reason that the Brits invite my country and Saudi Arabia and Bahrain and others to their arms fairs, is this, this word that I have come to hate and despise, and it is the word stability. Because the US Defense Department said it was selling Bahrain $53 million worth of weapons because it considers Bahrain a major non-NATO ally and a force of stability. And again, just before I arrived in Australia, the Egyptian foreign minister went to DC and met with Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State, and she described our Supreme Military Council, which has ruled Egypt since Mubarak was forced to step down. They are 19 men from the military who are all friends of Mubarak's from the military, who I call the Supreme Council of Mubarak's because we essentially replaced one Mubarak with 19 Mubarak's. And she told this foreign minister, our foreign minister visiting DC, that the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces is a force of, wait for it, stability and continuity for Egypt. If by that she meant it's a force of stability and continuity of the Mubarak regime, then she was absolutely right. But it's not the kind of stability and continuity that Egyptians took to the streets for. It's not the kind of status quo that almost 1,000 Egyptians paid their lives for. And it's not the kind of stability and major alliance that so many Bahrainis have risked their lives for. But in the case of Bahrain, we know that it's a major, ba rather than just being a major ally, it's a major buffer between the US's fifth fleet, Navy fifth fleet and Iran, that big bohemian of Iran. So what exactly lies behind this concept of stability? And why do these governments keep selling weapons to our dictators? And why are you largely silent? And I put it to you, my dangerous idea for you at this festival, seeing as it's the festival of, of dangerous ideas, is that for the people of North Africa, the Middle East and North Africa, to have freedom and dignity, that concept scares you. You don't imagine that the people in the Middle East and North Africa, you can't imagine that the people in the Middle East and North Africa want freedom and dignity. Because on some level, 
you don't see them as people like you. On some level, all of you, as well as your governments, who keep selling these weapons and love stability, have bought into a stereotype that has only served, that has served only our dictatorships and your governments. And that stereotype is that the people of the Middle East and North Africa, now people usually say Arabs, but it's not just Arabs in that part of the world, but the people in the Middle East and North Africa are lazy, are passive, don't like freedom, like strong-fisted dictators, want to be put in their place, want to be controlled, love Saddam Hussein-type leaders, love their pharaohs like Mubarak. I mean, it makes it sound like an abused wife who can't leave an abusive marriage. But this is the stereotype that was there when the people of the region were rising up. And this is the stereotype that so many of us have been fighting for so long. Because from day one when I was appearing on US television to try to explain what was happening, it was a stereotype that was butting my head up against over and over. Not just against the media, but against so-called experts. Because from the very beginning, if we rewind now to Tunisia, and that young man who set himself on fire in Sidi Bouzid, in central Tunisia, the young man called Mohamed Bouazizi, commonly referred to as the godfather of these amazing uprisings and revolutions in the Middle East and North Africa, when he set himself on fire, as tragic as his act was, there was no passivity in that act. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was taking control of his life, albeit to end it, because he must have known on some level that he would die. When that sparked the uprising that turned into the revolution in Tunisia, most international reaction was, where the hell is Tunisia? Because unless you were European, you really didn't know where Tunisia was, at least in, in North America, where I was. And we had various holidays at the time, Christmas, New Year, Hanukkah, all of that. And, and that, that stood in the way of, of me, major media coverage. So nobody really knew anything about Tunisia, but when they looked at Tunisia and they finally paid attention, the excuse for the uprising, and that's where the naysayers came in now, was that Tunisia was different. I mean, usually we talk about Arab exceptionalism, which is they're lazy, they're passive, they like their strong-armed leaders, they don't want to rise up, they love to live in tyranny. But this was now Tunisian exceptionalism because we were told... No, Tunisia is a largely secular country. Tunisia is a largely educated country. And it's not going to happen anywhere but Tunisia. Now, those of us watching Tunisia, those of us from that part of the world, were ecstatic because what we saw happening, sweeping across Tunisia, was something that we have dreamt of all our lives because we don't buy that stereotype because it's the stereotype that our dictators tell your officials when they come to our capitals that keep the weapons coming. Often the excuse for the alliances between your governments and ours is oil. It's a legitimate explanation for this hypocritical foreign policy, but it's not the only one. So I urge you again to consider that stereotype. So we who do not believe in that stereotype were celebrating because we knew that what was happening in Tunisia was going to spread everywhere. And so for those who cared to ask and, and, and wondered is it going to stop at the border of Tunisia? We said, of course not. This is amazing. This is something we knew would happen all along. Lo and behold, it happened in Egypt. And everyone who said, it's not going to happen anywhere in Tunisia, then started saying, well, just Egypt. Because, and here all the exceptions came out again, Egypt is a large country. Egypt is a country of thousands of years of civilization. You know, blah, blah, blah. Just excuses. And so the same people who for years have been saying we couldn't rise up, now had to explain why we were rising up. And yet the media kept going to those very same naysayers to ask them, 
Can you now tell us why you've been wrong all this time? And they scramble to explain why these people who love strong-armed dictators and who love to, to be tyrannized are now rising up. But again, they said, you know what, just Egypt. It's not going to go beyond Egypt. And, and funnily enough, the dictators were taking part in this chorus, but I can understand why the dictators in the Middle East and North Africa would say, nowhere but Tunisia, nowhere but Egypt, because for them to watch all these other old men, because they're all old men, to watch all these other old men being challenged like that by a largely youthful population, the majority of people in that part of the world uh, is younger than 30. So for these old men to watch this amazing flourishing of uprisings and revolutions, it terrified them. So I can understand them saying it won't happen in Egypt. I can understand them saying it won't happen in Yemen, but why would you say that? Why would your media say that? Why would your government say that? Why would you not be ecstatic at the thought that people want freedom and dignity? So again, I urge you to look at that stereotype because the stereotype up until then had posited that the only people who could rise up against these dictators were the scary Muslim men in beards, the Islamists, essentially. But the Islamists had nothing to do with the re revolution in Tunisia. I'm sure a few of them took, took part, but it was a largely, like Egypt, leaderless, level, leaderless level revolution that did not say we want an Islamic state. When Tunisians go to the polls, they will elect the government they want, as they should. As long as those elections are free and fair, we must all respect that. But I'm talking about the revolutions. Islamists did not swoop in to rescue Tunisians from Ben Ali. And in Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood, that big bogeyman, that Mubarak for 30 years had always put out there in the shadows for the Americans to be scared of. And the Americans delivered. Five different US presidents supported Hosni Mubarak because they did not want those scary Muslim men in beards to take over. But the scary Muslim men in beards did not spark the revolution in Egypt. Some Muslim men in beards took part in the revolution, yes. But the Muslim Brotherhood as a movement actually came very late to the party. They joined the revolution a few days into it. So the naysayers, again, were caught scrambling. The, the Islamists are not the only people who are there to rescue us from Hosni Mubarak. Why? Because that unique concept that Egyptians actually want to live lives of freedom and dignity, regardless of whether they're Muslim or Christian or atheist, regardless of whether they're scary and have beards and make you feel uncomfortable, regardless of all of those stereotypes. And then when the revolutions continued in Libya, there was another stereotype that you had to contend with. Because Libya was one of those strange countries that the West had a kind of on-again, off-again love affair with. Because for a very long time, the way that Libya was looked at was the way that Ronald Reagan defined Muammar Gaddafi, which was the mad dog of Libya. And if anything, one of the, one of the worst things that Libyans had to contend with for so long was that the, most of the world would look at Gaddafi as a clown. They didn't really take him seriously because he'd show up in all these outlandish outfits and his female bodyguards with their AK-47s and his tents that he would pitch everywhere. And somehow that made people think that he wasn't that much of a dictator just because he's a clown. But clowns can kill people. And Gaddafi imprisoned, filled his jails with dissidents, allowed Libyans very, very little freedoms of any kind. And for a very rich country, the fact that a third of his population lived in poverty is just a sign of how unconscionable his almost 42 years of dictatorship was. So why didn't we pay attention to what was happening to Libyans? Because most of the world, your governments, and governments here include Australia, include the US, include Europe, 
were so busy focusing on the crimes of the Gaddafi regime against non-Libyans. So we would talk about Pan Am, and we would talk about the French planes, and we would talk about acts of terrorism that Gaddafi would sponsor and finance outside of Libya. But we would not talk about what Gaddafi did inside. Again, it's like we thought, well, he's their leader, they want him, they like something about him. And it's, it's as if somehow they were not worthy of this idea that these people must want freedom and dignity. And it came up with Libya and then with, when Yemen started and Bahrain started and Syria started, where people would somehow imagine that all of a sudden, overnight, people just woke up and said, we're done. We're sick and tired of this. They would forget that for decades, Libyans have been trying to get rid of Gaddafi. They would forget that in the 1970s, he was arresting students en masse and publicly executing people on live television. And in the 1980s, sending agents to execute abroad what he called, quote unquote, stray dogs, which were dissidents of the Libyan regime, dissidents against Gaddafi. But no, none of this would be discussed because we were so busy focusing on Gaddafi's crimes against non-Libyans. And then when Gaddafi basically blackmailed the international community's conscience by paying reparations to the victims of Pan Am and other terrorist attacks. And then in 2003, after the Americans invaded Iraq, and Gaddafi realized nobody was scared of him anymore, and he became not just a scary clown, but just a clown, and renounced his supposed weapons of mass destruction, you could count the number of Western officials and business people that were scrambling and trying to outrun each other to go to Libya to strike deals with him to sell him weapons that they knew very well who he would use against, just as I've shown you in the examples of Saudi Arabia and Bahrain and Egypt, to, for oil and gas deals. Tony Blair went to Libya with a whole host of businessmen. The French and Italian leaders greeted, laid down the red carpet for Gaddafi, and the French actually allowed him to lecture them in their national assembly and actually give them a hard time. Actually, the French deserve a hard time on the way they treat immigrants and the way they treat people of immigrant descent generally. But it's as if Gaddafi was this human rights activist and no one stood up to him. Whereas Gaddafi was not just kidding Libyans, but asked black Africans how they were treated under the Gaddafi regime. And shamefully, to this day, the way they're being treated and many revolutionaries are speaking up and saying this should not happen. So why this, this silence about Gaddafi? Why did Condoleezza Rice go and meet him? Why, when we knew that he massacred at least a thousand people opened fire, a thousand people in 1996 in Abu Salim jail and killed them all and refused to acknowledge it for years. And it was actually the mothers and the relatives of those men who were killed in Abu Salim who started the Libyan revolution. So, so it did not happen overnight. These were mothers and sisters and wives who for years refused Gaddafi's blood money because he tried to silence them with money and said, no, we actually want a trial and accountability. Libyans calling for accountability, my goodness. <laughs> so much for the stereotype of these people not being worthy of freedom and dignity. And these women who for years have been calling for accountability from the, from the Gaddafi regime, they demonstrated on February the 15th because an attorney who had been representing their case for their male relatives who were slaughtered in the Abu Salim jail in 1996 was jailed by the Gaddafi regime. And two days before their demonstrations that were inspired by what was happening in the region were supposed to take part, these female relatives of these men demonstrated in Benghazi and sparked the revolution. So don't tell me that they suddenly woke up one night and said, oh my goodness, we deserve freedom and dignity. They've been trying 
to get freedom and dignity for years. But nobody would listen to them because unless you killed white Europeans, nobody listened to you. If you were killing your own people using weapons and making the most of money that you made with business deals with mostly white Europeans in the West and you used all of that to kill your own people, nobody really cared. And to add insult to injury, as the Americans were scrambling to catch up with what was happening in Egypt, one thing they forgot, and many of us tried to bring up in TV interviews, I mean, I remember at the time I was being interviewed with someone who worked with the Bush administration, and she was praising to high heaven a man that Mubarak had appointed as vice president during the revolution, a man called Omar Salman. Omar Salman, she said, was a man who was well respected in the region, and my question was by who? He was respected by the Americans, he was respected by other dictators in the region, but why was he respected by the Americans? Because he ran the rendition program for them. Not only did the Americans provide and continue to provide 40% of Egypt's military budget, but Egypt did the United States dirty work because Egypt was the number one destination for rendition for the United States because US law bars Americans. I'm now a US citizen, so bars my administration from torturing people on US soil, they had to open this Guantanamo place. But also, they sent to their major allies so-called so terrorism suspects to be tortured that they couldn't do back home. And Egypt, to my shame, and to the shame of many people in Egypt, but also to our outrage, was the number one destination for rendition. And here was this former Bush administration advisor telling me that Omar Salman was a well-respected man. Well-respected for what? For torturing people for you? For doing your dirty work? And then you dare to say that my people, our people, do not stand up to dictators? We stand up to dictators, and yet your governments send them millions and billions of dollars in aid and sell them weapons, and then also encourage them. Turn a blind eye, first of all, when they torture us, but encourage them to torture people for you. And you wonder how these dictators stayed in power for so long? The question here isn't, why didn't people rise up earlier? The question here is, how can you even wonder how these dictators stayed in power for so long when your money and your inability, your blindness to our demands for freedom and dignity allowed them to stay in power for so long? And so now, when we look at the region and these naysayers scramble to explain why people are uprising, well, they, of course they're rising up. They've been trying to rise up for years. You just weren't paying attention. And now the naysayers, we are struggling to hold on to our optimism in Egypt. Today, the Supreme Military Council of Mubarak's laid down a so-called timetable for, now this, remember, is four or five days after our foreign minister met with Hillary Clinton. Do you honestly think he did not sit there and tell her, we're going to lay down a timetable for this supposed transition from military rule, the Supreme Council of Mubarak to civilian rule? Because this is something for sure that they had discussed. And this idea of US military aid to Egypt being tied to democratic ideals for the longest time and to this day, the US administration continues to refuse to even countenance that aid to Egypt should, should be held conditional to Egypt's respect, to whoever's ruling Egypt, respect for human rights, respect for a transition to the civilian rule, respect for all of that, and why? Because the United States likes to keep its aid to Egypt tied to one thing and one thing only, and that one thing is how nicely Egypt plays with Israel. If Egypt stops playing nicely with Israel, it will use that to threaten it. While, while the rest of us, most Egyptians I know, are saying, cut the aid, cut the aid. We don't want your money. We don't want your weapons. We want to be free of the Supreme Council of, military, Supreme Council of Mubarak's. But that Supreme Council of the military today 
announced a timetable for this supposed transition to civilian rule that looks way ahead until the end of next year when it proposes presidential elections after which it will step aside and that's at the end of 2012. So we're looking at being ruled by a military junta until all the way up to the beginning of 2013. This is not what we had a revolution in Egypt for. And even worse, emergency law, which Egypt has been under for the past, since 1981, every year that all these weapons deals, every year that all this aid goes to Egypt, we have been under emergency law, which basically means you can be arrested anytime for no reason whatsoever, be disappeared, be tortured, all of this. The emergency law, the Supreme Military Council, the Supreme Council of Mubarak says it will study the lifting of the emergency law. I'm not really sure what there is to study because we know very well what the emergency law has done to Egypt because it's been doing it since 1981. And it considers possibly lifting it sometime next year. As it will study a whole bunch of other demands that have been on the top five list of demands since the revolution. That, and these demands have been mostly ignored. The ending of emergency law was one of the major demands of the revolution back in January when Egyptians took to the streets. So again, this, this stereotype now, let's go back now to your stereotypes and hypocrisy, not just at the heart of your various governments and their dealings with our governments or with our regimes. Because we know oil, I've talked about weapons, I've talked about rendition and the dirty business that we end up doing for the Americans. But what do you think of the people in my part of the world? Why is it that you think we are so dangerous that if we had freedom and dignity, it would somehow upend something. What, what would it upend? What makes you so uncomfortable about the thought that people in the Middle East and North Africa want freedom and dignity? Is it because we're Muslims and you imagine us all with these scary beards? And if Muslims get freedom and dignity, what will happen? Will we come over here and convert you all? Will we go to the United States and force everyone to live under Sharia, which is what the right-wing nutcases in the United States claim is happening from a tiny 2.5% of the population, Muslims must be really powerful. If we so captivate and hold dominant your nightmares that for wanting what you have and for wanting what you take for granted, we are constantly questioned. From the very beginning, we were told you could not do this. And then when we started to do it, we were asked, why didn't you do this before? And then as we continued to do it, People kept saying, you will fail. It will not work. I would go to all these panel discussions in New York, and the first question, as if somehow people in New York knew what was happening in Cairo better, the first question would be, are you aware of this? Are you aware of that? All these dark counter-revolutionary forces. Of course we are, but will you give us a chance to make it work? Why all this naysaying? The t soon after Tunisia, when I kept seeing the same names over and over again of all these so-called experts who kept saying this is never going to happen, who kept saying... Oh my God, it happened. How do we now explain that it happened? I spoke to three friends of mine, an Egyptian journalist who works for the Financial Times, uh, a Mauritanian anti-slavery activist who lives in the United States under political asylum, and a Syrian poet and human rights activist. And I said to them, what is this? What's going on? Why all this naysaying? Doesn't it piss you off? Because it really pisses me off. And they said, you know, it's really funny. For so many decades now, we're told... Why aren't, you people, why aren't you people democratizing? Why aren't you people more democratic? Why aren't you people fighting for freedom by the very same countries that were strengthening what I call our papas? Because one of the major ironies for us is 
Mubarak and Omar Sariman and the king of Saudi Arabia in his 80s and the king of Bahrain, also very old, and Gaddafi, who was kind of young, you know, relatively, 67, and all these other old men, you know, they were the papas of the Middle East and North Africa. And what happened to these big daddies was they felt that the rug was literally pulled out from under their feet by the kids. They'd never taken these kids seriously. The majority of their population are basically the kids. And yet we had the Obama administration, and administ Obama himself, who so galvanized young people in the United States, young people across the world actually, Obama, who made so many young people across the world, but especially in the United States, fall in love with politics again. Obama, who had sent more young Americans to the polls than we had seen in decades. Here we saw Obama struggling to catch up and understand what's happening. And here we saw Obama and his various officials, be they the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, whatever secretary he has in his, in, in his administration. Here we see them taking the side of the big daddies, taking the side of the old men standing in the way of our freedom and dignity. And my Egyptian friend, who works for the Financial Times, she said, you know, they would keep pointing to these countries and saying things like, but their economies are doing so great. Egypt was often listed on, on the, all these lists of emerging economies that you should invest in. None of that trickled down to ordinary Egyptians. Ordinary Egyptians were, were killing each other in bread lines, in bread queues, a few years ago during the food crisis, three or four years ago, because none of this fabulous wealth was trickling down to us. Instead, it was going to Big Daddy and his son, because as well as all these old men ruling us, they had their sons and their son-in-laws all lined up to inherit us. This is one of the, another reason that we rose up in Egypt, because we didn't want to be inherited by these sons. But these sons fed into another stereotype. This is where the sons came into the stereotype now, with the hypocrisy rhyming with democracy thing. Because all of a sudden, these supposedly democratic governments dealing with our dictators somehow claimed, proclaimed these young men, the sons and the sons-in-laws of our big daddies, as great hopes. They were the great white hope. Why were the great white hope? Why were they our great hopes? Because they were educated in the London School of Economics. Because one of them, the Syrian dictator, was an ophthalmologist in Damascus. Because they wear suits and they speak English. And their wives are glamorous and they wear Jimmy Choo's. And Vogue magazine, much to its shame, had a multiple page spread interviewing and profiling one of these fabulously glamorous Jimmy Choo wearing first ladies, Asma Assad. They interviewed her and her husband and they published this profile in the middle of the Tunisian revolution. And what did she tell, what did glamorous Asma Assad tell Vogue magazine? She told them, we run our house in a very democratic way. Our children get to choose, they get to elect every morning what cereal they eat. And we thought, how lovely, how lovely for the Assad children. If only they extended this wonderful democracy to the rest of, of Syria. And so you had all these sons, you know, brutes, the sons of dictators, who you know would not subject us to anything but dictatorship. But because Saif al-Islam and Gaddafi wore sharp suits and invited Mariah Carey and Beyonce for concerts that they got a million dollars each for, and wax lyrical like a philosopher, you bought the crap that he was somehow going to represent democracy. And that's what my Syrian friend told me. He said to me, they just don't think we're capable of doing this. They don't believe that we have it in us to be free. So I ask you, because I want to wind it up now, because I'd love to get into that. I my question to you, before you ask me anything, my question to you is, what is it that makes you 
and your governments and your media so uncomfortable to the point of fear of my people being free, of my people having freedom and dignity, basically of my people living lives just like yours. I ask this, but I remind you that we will not stop in our fight for freedom because as much as the Supreme Council of Mubarak's continues to stand in our way, as much as Assad continues to slaughter people and pull out the vocal cords of a non-violent activist and send them to his family and say, make shawarma out of them, as much as the, the Saudis sentence their women to be lashed just for driving and a whole bunch of bullshit cultural relativism is used to justify it because it's their culture and we must be quiet. Well, we're not being quiet and it's not our culture because we didn't determine this is our culture. The old men, the big daddies determined it, it was our culture. Despite all of this, despite Bahrain sending to jail doctors and nurses and despite the weapons that your governments continue to sell to our big daddies to keep us down, we will be free. Thank you. Thank you, Mona. You pulled me up the other night when I met you and I referred to the social media revolution in um, Egypt. And I realise now, of course, what I was doing was exactly what Mona's talking about, as if suddenly, goodness, Egyptians got blackberries, um, they learned how to tweet, and lo and behold, there was a revolution, which is yet another way, um, guilty, guilty as charged yet another way of saying I'm not looking at the deeper causes, I'm just thinking that because suddenly you guys got hold of some technology that we've had, mm -hmm. oh my goodness, look what it's done. I mean, how do you feel about that phrase, the social media revolution? Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny because for, for several years, I mean, you mentioned that I went back to Egypt and I took part in demonstrations and, and the, the marches back in 2005, which was a real turning point for Egypt, especially for young people who'd felt so disaffected from politics for so long. It was a really big struggle for me when I, when I gave these public talks to persuade people that young people in the Middle East and North Africa were using blogs and then Facebook when it came about, not just to flirt and you know, post pictures of themselves drunk the night before at parties, but to actually to speak out and, and endanger their lives. So my struggle back then was to show what a useful tool, but just a tool, these social media, uh, social media had become. But then after the revolutions and uprisings began, my struggle was almost upended because then it became a struggle to persuade people that look it's not a Facebook revolution it's not a Twitter revolution what when you call it that what you end up doing is you you take agency away from people and and you give it to Twitter and you give it to Facebook well you have Twitter and Facebook here what have you used it for you know it's 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 not about that uh, revolutions are about feet on the ground revolutions are about taking what you do in that virtual world and translating it into the real world and the real sign of that or the real proof of that was when Mubarak put Egypt under information lockdown. He shut down the internet. And what happened was it sent out more people onto the street because all the kids who were bored at home and couldn't be on Facebook anymore were now on the street. But it showed you that the revolution was bigger than just Facebook and Twitter. And you know, back in 1978, when Ayatollah Khomeini was sending cassette tapes from Paris back to Tehran that you know, presaged his return and then the Iranian revolution, nobody calls the Iranian revolution the cassette tape revolution. You know, cassette tapes were just things that he used to get the message across. So social media are tools, and we use them in whatever way we want. You want to post pictures of yourself drunk? Go ahead. People in Egypt were using them to post things like come out on January the 25th and give each other advice on what to do if tear gas gets too much and you're suffocating. Some questions from the audience? 
this gentleman right in front of me. At, uh, one of the things that's rather striking is this, I read a lot of Robert Fisk, and the, one of the things that hits me with a whole many of these is why Britain and America, which proclaimed against democracy, the two of them got together in 1952 and got rid of the democracy setting up in that area in a country called Iran, and they eliminated the Queen in charge. Mm -hmm. And since that time, all sorts of things there, and they're now saying right. that's the worst country in the world that's upsetting right. all other people around there. Yep. How do you think that applies in the area that you're looking at in our Right. Well, well, that's the Mossadegh uh, government that you're referring to, where it was it, because of the Brits and the CIA, he was overthrown. It's, you know, it's this idea that, who was it? I can't remember who said it. I think it was Richard Nixon, you know? Our, what is it? Our bastard? At least we know him. You know, this idea that you have a dictator, you have this, this Shah, you have a Mubarak, you have a Gaddafi, whose actions you can't always guarantee, but at least you know you have these deals with him. You'll continue to sell him weapons, you'll continue to buy his oil or gas, as long as he continues to do your bidding. But he also knows very well how to keep your governments coming, because again, he instills this fear that if it's not for me, it's going to be chaos uh, and stability, stability equaling the status quo. So yeah, you're right, it's a pattern that has repeated itself over and over and over, where you get from one side of, of the mouth of these various Western leaders, we believe in democracy and, and human rights, and every year the US produces human rights reports as part of what the State Department does. It knows very well what's in the human rights reports, and we know that the US knows what's happening because the WikiLeaks cables shows us that they were sending cables back home every, every day saying, we see what's happening. But they chose to ignore all of that for this mythical stability of, you know, our, the devil you know better than the devil you don't. Yes, up here. I'm glad you asked me this question, and, and if I've made you uncomfortable, I'm, I'm glad I've made you uncomfortable because I... <laughs> it, I'm supposed to make you uncomfortable. But, you know, not to make you uncomfortable for the sake of making you uncomfortable. I think discomfort can be used to start conversations that we really have. Because when we're all being incredibly polite and incredibly understanding, it, 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 turns in, it can turn into a very faux kind of understanding that really doesn't represent anything and nothing of substance ends up coming out. I would ask you, first of all, why you don't know that much about that part of the world, considering how 
not just here in Australia, but you know, I, I put the same questions to US audiences and various European audiences that, that, that I address. So my, my question is, why don't you know that much about a part of the world that your government is so heavily invested in? And secondly, okay, I, I argued for this and we lost. <laughs> But, but, you know, secondly, what, what really troubles me also about your, your question is that you say that I know that there's a distance between you and your government and it doesn't really represent you. Well, what are you doing about that? Because as you saw in that part of the world, people have been standing up to water cannon and tanks and they've been killed in their dozens to make sure, to tell these regimes that don't listen to them, you have to listen to me now. So you don't have tanks and water cannon on your street here. So what are you doing so that your government actually represents you? How are you guaranteeing? Are you out in the streets marching in your thousands? And when you do, do they listen to you? Because in New York right now, we have this Occupy Wall Street movement. They arrested 400 people because they wanted to cross Brooklyn Bridge. In New York in 2003, when myself and thousands of people marched against the invasion of Iraq, the US administration didn't listen to us. So, so I'm asking you here in Australia, if you feel that your government doesn't listen to you, what are you doing about that? And, and, that, and that's, that's not to pick a fight with you. That's a genuine, sincere question because it's very troubling. But it's fair to say that many thousands here marched against the Iraq war, and yet the government took absolutely no notice, that, none whatsoever. And, and I mean, we don't have then water cannon to stand up against, but I don't know what, we're, what we can do next. Right, um, right. Well, I think what's, what's been happening in the region now is making people like yourself, like people, you know, just people across the world, really ask themselves that troubling question. What, what will I do now that I've seen these people who are willing to take these risks to stand up to be heard because what that does is it reverses, it puts the onus on you now. Because you will wake up. You know, when I first moved to the US in 2000, it used to break my heart to hear young Americans say, the 1960s are over, there's nothing I can do, I can't change anything. That's why I mentioned Obama and young people and galvanizing you know, the, the imagination of the young and the love of politics of the young. But this idea that you feel so disempowered, this idea that you feel that your government doesn't listen to you, it's a horrible idea. And this is where you can go to ballot boxes and vote freely and fairly. What about the people over there who are being killed every day? So I think what's happening in that part of the world is creating a seismic shift, not just in challenging you about what you do and don't know about that part of the world, but it makes you look in the mirror and ask, what am I going to do now? If they can stand to rise up while they mutilate and torture them for standing up nonviolently, what am I going to do now to make sure my government listens to me? But I can, I, can I ask you one thing? Because mm -hmm. I heard those people in Bahrain, yeah. those doctors on the radio, and I can believe I was hearing it, saying, we're being shot at, help us, help us. And here am I in Sydney listening to this on the radio. They, we abandoned them for the sake of what you call stability. I mean, what is the alternative? Do we call on our governments to intervene if that results in a civil war where many, many more may be killed? Mm -hmm. Is that what you're asking us to do? I'm asking you to tell your government that what they're doing right now is taking the wrong side. 
I don't, first of all, no one in that part of the world, be, besides the Libyans, and Libya was an exception, and the Libyans called for the international community to intervene militarily. But nobody else in the region has called for anyone to come in and rescue them militarily. And this idea that you can invade for democracy, clearly we saw the sham behind that. That was just a lie. But they're calling on your governments, uh, calling on you to tell your government, stop siding with the dictators. And this idea that there'll be civil war, this idea that it will turn Sunnis and Shia against each other, this idea that Iran will, will take advantage of it in, in the case of Bahrain, is that bogeyman that the Bahraini regime has used to make you ask exactly that. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the, the Bahrainis, when, when they started to rise up, they had a clear list of demands. If they had, you know, if they'd just gone out to the streets and, and it was just sheer anarchy and chaos and there was no clear list of demands, I can understand some worry. But you know what they were asking for? They were asking for uh, a constitution written by parliament. They were asking for an end to torture. They were asking for the release of political prisoners. And this isn't the first time that the Bahrainis have demonstrated. If anything, they, of all the countries in the region, have been demonstrating the longest over the past 10 years, you know. And yet, Western allies of Bahrain consider that the king a reformer because he pays lip service to reform. So, so what, I'm, what I'm saying to you is there isn't going to be a civil war. I'm, I'm asking you to tell your governments to stop listening to the lies of these regimes who present to you these nightmare scenarios and, and, and present themselves as the only ones who can save you from these nightmare scenarios. If you tell your governments to take the right side and that right side of the people, recognize it's going to be a mess. It's going to be a total mess in Egypt when we have elections. Nobody's under the illusion that we're going to have these wonderful elections when we go to the polls at the end of November. But it's going to be a mess that we will learn from, and it's going to be a mess that people feel invested in. And because people recognize the price of rising up against water cannon and tanks, they will make it work. So I ask you to tell your governments to take the side of the people and not the dictator. More questions? Over here. When uh, Gaddafi first came into power, there were some who believed he would be a reformer. Yeah. When the Shah was overthrown, there was a strong liberal leftist movement mm -hmm. which disappeared very shortly after. Mm -hmm. What went wrong? Many things went wrong. And you're, and you're right to point out that Gaddafi, I mean, I, I know I have friends Arab friends who moved to Libya very soon after he took over because he ended the monarchy. He was considered as this kind of bright young thing. He was only 27. And, you know, he talked the talk like Gamal Abdel Nasser about Arab pride and Arab nationalism and Arab unity. And, you know, clearly that, that went down the drain. It, it depends on which country you're talking about because there are various scenarios because obviously not every country is a cookie-cutter version of another country. In the case of Iran, I mean, the dynamics, the internal dynamics are not the dynamics that we have in Egypt. And even in the case of Libya, and I put it to you that as disastrous as the aftermath of the Iranian revolution was, where the clerics basically co-opted co what happened and pushed aside and executed and imprisoned en masse all the secular forces that took part in Iran's revolution, because it wasn't just an Islamic revolution, it was the clerics who took over. I put it to you that, that even if the Muslim Brotherhood or other Islamists in the part of the world tried to do that, that's not going to happen because we live in a different world now. We are able to see what's happening in Egypt in a way that we were not able to see what's happening in Iran in 1979, and in a way that we were, able, were not able to see what was happening in Libya. So I think this, this transparency, if we pay attention to it, if the media stops asking these inane questions and actually asks probing questions, it, that is going to act as a great counterweight, but also a great support to the forces within the country that want it to re remain this pluralistic place that isn't going to be taken over. So I, I often get asked about Iran especially, what, what is to guarantee the Muslim Brotherhood isn't going to take over? One of the things I, I think will guarantee the Muslim Brotherhood will take over is A, they're not the clerics. We don't have this kind of the clerical class that can rule. B, 
When the Muslim Brotherhood do get elected into parliament, and they will, and they should be if Egyptians vote for them, because they're Egyptian too. I think we should vote for whoever we want. My dream scenario would be coalitions being built in the Egyptian parliament. You know, so you will have the Muslim Brotherhood, you will have other parties. I identify as secular. I hope the secular groups will all uh, form a coalition. And the Muslim Brotherhood will get bogged down in the day-to-day -day actual, you know, boring details of actually running a country, you know, of being parliamentarians. Because in the past, when they weren't challenged, they could say things like, Islam is the solution. And it means absolutely nothing. But when you're in eternal opposition, and you're the bogeyman, you can say it and people think, oh, that sounds great. But what does that actually mean when you have to fix the roads? What does that mean when you have to build a fourth subway line in Egypt? What does that actually mean when you have to go to Washington now and do all this realpolitik with the Americans that you claimed for so long you didn't like? You know, what does that actually mean when you have to sit down now and think, what are we going to do about the Camp David peace treaty with Israel? Are we going to amend the parts in the peace treaty that say we can't have our own armed forces in the Sinai? Do you know what I mean? So it's not going to be a cleric sitting there with a, with a copy of the Quran. It's going to be Egyptians in parliament being held accountable by the constituents who voted them in. And that is going to be our best guarantee of making the revolution succeed. I've got a question up here in the gallery. Should I repeat that for the people over here? What does Mona feel in the context of hypocrisy and democracy about countries like China and Burma and Syria? Syria. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, clearly the hypocrisy, there's a lot of hypocrisy to go around when you look at a country like China that for so many years in the United States is, is given the most favoured trade status and you know a whole bunch of other things that go into you know, ask why India has dealings with Burma, et cetera, et cetera. I think each, each one of these countries, again, is, is not a cookie-cutter version of, of each or of the other. But in the case of Syria, for example, there have been calls that have been heard in various European capitals to boycott Syrian oil because one, uh, one of the ways that the Syrian regime earns money is to sell oil to the Europeans. So I think we need to look at each of these countries and see where we, we being the international community, can play an effective role. In the case of countries that are given aid, like we don't give aid to China, obviously, but, but a country like um, Syria and Turkey, Turkey is a major player in the Middle East now, and Turkey wants to be a member of the EU, and Turkey wants to be taken seriously as a major power in the region. Turkey keeps talking about cutting off its aid to Syria, but how about making it real? When it comes to countries like Egypt that does get $1.5 billion in USAID every year, make it real and cut it off. Because now Congress is discussing, make it, as I said, making it conditional to the respect of human rights. But as long as it's always held subject to justice, play nice with Israel, you know, that's where the hypocrisy comes in. Do you know what I mean? So each country will have its own specific conditions. And we, the international community, have to see where we can be most effective and pressure our respective governments and say, you cannot do this in my name anymore because I will not stand for this hypocrisy. Okay, I see you. Can you speak up a little? Okay, <laughs> fair enough. 
Well, you know, talking about the water cannon, if I can, and I will answer the American thing. <clears throat> Interestingly, and I, I started my talk by mentioning Lord Cromer and the, the troubled relationship Egypt has with, with the Brits. And you know, when they had riots in the UK, Cameron and other British officials were talking about taking water cannon out on the street and cutting off social media. And it sounded, I mean, I wrote a column at the time saying they sound like they're taking advice from Hosni Mubarak. So it's funny that, that the very things that they were condemning these various dictators, allies, from doing, when these supposedly democratically elected governments feel threatened, they bring out the very same things. So whether you live under a dictatorship or you live under a democratically elected government, they bring out the water cannon against you, which makes you, you know, you have to wonder, why did I become an American? One of the reasons I, I could have become an American several years ago, but it, it took me a while to get my papers together. Well, actually, one of the reasons that I became an American was because last year in New York, we had this big hullabaloo, this kind of politically manufactured crisis over the Islamic Community Center that is going to be built close to Ground Zero. And I, would, I, I went there and joined sidewalk activists to fight for its right to build right there and not move, to essentially fight against its guilt by association that all Muslims must forever be sorry about what happened when none of us had anything to do with it. It was these 19 men who flew these buildings on that awful day. And I would stand there and I would argue with some Americans. There were several Tea Party members would come and hurl abuse at us. And I got into a particularly vitriolic fight with one of them where I gave my middle finger to someone and just got into a, you know, a very colorful fight. And I was standing there saying, you know what, you're an American and I'm an American and I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. And I wasn't an American, but you know, I was just trying to make a point. And so now I can, I can say that and I can tell people, you know, I'll be damned if I move anywhere and I'll be damned if I'm silent. And I say this as an American and I say this as a Muslim and I say this as an Egyptian. And if any part of all of these multiple identities makes you uncomfortable, then to hell with you. But having that passport, as, and I understand the liability of being an American citizen today because of the, you know, the various, the burden of, of the, the horrendous way that the US administration conducts itself, but now as an American, I can hold them accountable in a way that I feel is even more powerful because now I feel even more of a need to be critical of them than before. And I can stand and yell at a Tea Party nutcase and say, I'm an American too, so fuck you. Excuse my language. <laughs> <laughs> there, there was somebody over there? Yeah, this question here. Yes? Like, right, right here. Your hand up, yep. Oh, I, there's one behind oh, I, I saw that. her here as well. Put your hand up way high. So we, yeah, she had a, a oh, hand okay. up too. Oh. Which one are you? Marnie, you chose. Yeah, go, because I saw her last Okay. <laughs> can you speak up a little, or I can repeat it for you?
I might just repeat that for everyone. This is a question about what happens to minority groups in countries where the regime is overthrown, and the example here is Syria, where this lady's family are Alawites, which is the ruling minority at, the, at now. So she's asking what, what Mona thinks should there be, would there be a backlash against minorities like that, as happened with the Christians in Iraq? Right. You ask an absolutely legitimate and necessary question, and, and I know it's, it's something that has crossed the minds of many Christians in Egypt. It's something that has crossed the minds of you know, people like myself who identify as secular liberal Muslims in Egypt and all the other communities that you mentioned. I think it's important to bear in mind it's not a question of dictators guaranteeing uh, this kind of multi, um, uh, plural, plurality or uh, dictators being the only ones who can guarantee the safety and stability of, of minorities. I think by nature what these dictators have done, and we saw it in, in Libya where it was a tribal thing, what they do is they give the most important and kind of vital jobs, like in, in the case of Libya, to the Republican Guard, to others of similar minority background, so that they understand who their benef benefactors are, so that they always know that if they go, I'm going to go as well. It's a very deliberate choice. And so on the surface, it looks like Bashar al-Assad respects minorities and takes care of minorities. It's because he's a minority and he understands that he's saving his own skin, right? In the case of Libya, we saw that Gaddafi would spend millions of Libya's oil wealth on certain tribes that would guarantee that he would remain in power, but he would ignore others in the eastern province, in Benghazi, for example, which was the first to rise up. So, so the point I'm making is that, yes, I, I've heard exactly those fears from Syrian friends of mine who are either Alawite or Christian, but I've also heard those who are involved in the revolution, be it inside or outside, saying, this is not a revolution that wants to target these minorities. This is not a revolution that wants to go out for revenge. Unfortunately, in the mess that transitional stages end up being, that does happen, and that is absolutely wrong. I mentioned what's been happening to black Africans in Libya. You mentioned what has happened to minorities in Iraq. It's all wrong. And what, what we need to do is, is we need to get to a stage where the, the guarantor of the safety of any kind of minority or any group is not the dictator. It becomes the population itself where we respect each other, regardless of our, of our background. And, and I see my Syrian friends working very hard to say, look, this is not targeting Alawites, this is not targeting Christians. And you will see examples of both members of the, both the Alawite and Christian communities taking part in protests, and you'll see pictures and videos of them coming out on YouTube as a way of showing, look, we too are a part of this. Because this is also being used in Bahrain, where the ruling family belongs to the minority Sunnis. And they're trying to make it seem like if we fall, Iran and the majority Shia are going to turn your life into hell. And so what they end up doing is the best jobs go to the Sunnis in Bahrain, even though there's a minority. And a country like Bahrain that has tremendous wealth, the Shia, you know, they live 10 to a room. I had dinner with a Shia friend from Bahrain a couple of weeks ago in New York. And he told me that Shia in a country as, as wealthy as Bahrain, many are unemployed. Many live, you know, in, they're dirt poor. How can this happen in a rich country? It's because dictatorships, especially those that come from minority backgrounds, recognize what keeps them strong. What we, the people of the region, have to do is speak out for the rights of everybody. The kind of societies we want and the kind of societies that we are overthrowing these big daddies for is a society where the population itself is the guarantor of the safety of everybody. And where just because the Muslim Brotherhood is either in the Egyptian or Syrian parliament, it doesn't mean that the rights of Christians or women or the secular or the Alawites will in any way be affected. So we have to be the guarantors.
Now, we've actually gone over time. I've been told that because we're the last session, we can go a few more minutes over time. So if you could just keep, there are two more questions over here. If you could keep your questions short, and Mona, you might have to keep your answers a bit short. <laughs> I go um, on a bit. <laughs> over, over here, you had a question? Oh, a very short two-part question, please. It's a question about the negative Im impact of withdrawing aid and putting conditions on that right, aid. Right. I'll start with your second question first. I can absolutely guarantee to you that the average Egyptian experienced no benefit whatsoever from the aid that comes from the US government, at least. Because that $1.5 billion, $1.3 billion of it goes to the Egyptian military. It, it constitutes 40% of its budget. And so whatever remaining billion, and often, that $1.3 billion would have to be used to buy American weapons. So it's basically you give with one hand and you take from the other. And very little of the other remaining billions was actually benefiting ordinary Egyptians. I mean, occasionally you'd get a program like USAID um, that would go out and you know, have some kind of program on reproductive rights or whatever and, and in various rural areas of Egypt. But honestly, the average Egyptian sees no benefit whatsoever. So you're not, you know, you're not cutting off, say, bread or anything. I wish aid was the kind of aid that would actually go to people and would actually help people. But then, you know, once you do get into that, you get into all the other discussions about aid and how it hasn't helped a country like Somalia and how actually aid impedes development. Many, many people now, many people especially indigenous to those countries, are calling even for aid that does supposedly help the population, are even calling for that to end because what they say is it just basically props up corrupt dictatorships because it, it ends up masking whatever problem that this aid ends up helping. And with, with financial institutions like the IMF and the World Bank, I mean, you know, the IMF offered to give Egypt a whole bunch of money that the Egyptian government right now um, turned down because it recognized people didn't want it. And for such a long time, the IMF and the World Bank knew exactly what was happening in Egypt, the corruption in Egypt, the way all the money would go to Mubarak and his sons, all of that, they know. So there's very, very little trust for those institutions. If those institutions can somehow clean up their act, and ensure an accountability and a transparency that has not been there, perhaps. But I, many people in the region are not so optimistic about that. Okay, okay. well look, we might wrap it up there. I know, I know there are many more questions. I'm sorry, I can see we've gone quite a bit over time and some people need to leave. Thank you very much, Mona. Thank you. You've challenged us and uh, shame. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you.